0: If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com.
1: This episode originally aired on our Patreon. We'll be back soon with brand new episodes. Thank you for your understanding. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised.
0: Some of the stories that creep me out the most are the ones about finding out someone has been living in your house, going completely undetected by the family that lives there. From hidden rooms, pathways in the halls, crawl spaces, or nests in the attic, I find it utterly disturbing. My case today is the kind that will likely give me nightmares tonight. Honestly, it will give any parent or guardian nightmares. We're going to talk about a grown man who who secretly lived in the bedroom of a 12-year-old girl. On March 11th, 2020, a man named Zacharias Adrian Cavazos was arrested for sexually assaulting a 12-year-old girl repeatedly over an entire month. Cavazos spent that month living in the young girl's bedroom right up until the police handcuffed him right there in the very room. Cavazos, who lives in Washington, met the 12-year-old girl through social media using Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat to regularly message her and convince her to meet him in person. He suggested they meet at the Wild Horse Resort and Casino in February. From there, he went to her home on the Umatilla Indian Reservation, where he hid in her room with her. Over the course of two weeks, he sexually assaulted her repeatedly. When he wasn't abusing her, he took the slats out from underneath her bed so he could hide within a cavity in the box spring. On February 25th, the girl's grandfather, who is her guardian, discovered the man in her room, so he kicks him out. What grandpa didn't know was that the man had multiple hiding spots in her room, and once he was kicked off the property, he slipped back in and resumed his abuse for another two weeks. Cavazos' lawyer argued that he thought, Cavazos thought, that he was engaging in a, quote, appropriate romantic relationship with the girl in her bedroom. Thankfully, the judge shut that down, saying basically that in no world is an interaction between a 20-year-old and a 12-year-old appropriate or romantic. She said, quote, that's not remotely possible since the victim can't legally provide consent. And obviously, I agree. It's rape, plain and simple. Since the assault took place on the Indian Reservation, it will be tried in federal court. So he's being charged with sexual abuse of a minor, and he is going to the U.S. District Court in Portland. Now, Cavazos is currently released until he goes to trial. The judge ordered that he is not allowed to make contact with the victim. He cannot go to the reservation or the casino. His phone and computer are monitored, and he's currently confined to a clean and sober home in Aloha, Oregon, where he is being monitored by GPS as well as adhering to a curfew. Now, there are some things I wanted to talk about with this case just because I don't know if everyone is familiar with how reservations work and how the federal go- government intervenes sometimes. So I wanted to address this. I know we talked about it a little in one of our previous mm-hmm. episodes, um, but I'm going to use a term called Indian country. This is something recognized by our federal government and it is a law. Now, what this means is tribal land within a reservation is Indian country. It also um, incorporates towns and other properties that are non-Indian owned, but are within the reservation boundaries. So in Oregon, we have 1.4% of our land falling into what we deem Indian country. In the 2009 census, 1.6% of Oregonians identified as American Indian or Alaska Native. Now, let's remember, these groups are significantly underreported. In fact, right now in Oregon, there's a marketing campaign for the census, directed at those populations. Their hopes are to make folks understand that reporting how you identify will help your community get more grants and other benefits. But I can see why people might not want to because of the history between Mm -hmm. being Native American in the U.S. and the government. So I totally understand. I feel like we should invest more in education around the census because even people I know don't want to report. And I'm like, you realize how much goes off of that census. I mean, my work uses that data Mm -hmm. and it's very private. I have a colleague who used to work at the census and she, like nobody has passwords to anything. You you don't know Jack.
1: Yeah, it really is to make sure you have the right amount of representatives in Washington and you have the right you know, federal budget and local budget and support services for what you need and how many kids do we have. So how many schools do we need? I mean, it covers everything. And especially for Native Americans, because, you know, the murder rate, the domestic violence rate, all of that and the, you know, sexual assault rate Mm -hmm. is so like just astronomically higher percentage. Yeah. So you report that and then maybe you get more, you know, in-house security yes. type stuff so that it's not dealing with federal government, not dealing with mm-hmm. the police. But it's you can definitely, have local police.
0: It's a hurdle in a lot of population, a lot of minority populations. This is a problem. Yeah. Um. So I'm hoping that, you know, getting the word out there helps. Especially people- now. Right I mean, now,
1: census is open, like everyone mm-hmm. go online and do it. It's- if you are a family of immigrants, even if you are a citizen, but maybe your family is immigrants right now in this climate, how likely are you to report? Yeah, I mean, really, because you're with worried people getting if I report, out.
0: they're going to know exactly where I live, mm-hmm. who they're going to take my family members. It's a very scary
1: time. And it's easy so. to say that's not what it's for. But unfortunately, you really have no well, idea. You know, it depends on
0: who's in power, I think. But we won't go down that too far. So getting back to tribal law and how it interacts with the government, it is a little tricky. So I just wanted to break it down really easy for our listeners. And I know we talked about this before, but it doesn't hurt to bring it up again. So I'm going to talk about a few scenarios. All of these reference major crimes in Indian country, both federal terms. Major crimes, Indian country. This info comes from tribalinstitute.org. When a perpetrator is Indian and a victim is Indian, this goes to tribal jurisdiction. Federal government has nothing to do with it. They handle it within their own jurisdiction. When the perpetrator is non-Indian and the victim is non-Indian and it happens on tribal land, this goes to the state court. When a perpetrator is Indian and the victim is non-Indian, this can be interfered with by the federal government or it can be handled on tribal land. I don't exactly know how that works, but I have a feeling the federal government will intervene if they don't agree with how it's handled.
1: Oh, I think. Right. I'm not sure. That would make
0: sense. Now, when the perpetrator is non-Indian and the victim is Indian, this is a federal case. And that that was this is our scenario. The girl is Native American and the man is not. So that's why it's yeah, that's why it's being handled there, which I think is good. And will hopefully get some attention on this case, because as we know, these are these girls are in such a susceptible, risky. Mm -hmm. er I mean, it's just so sad. So I wanted to pull up some of these stats that we've talked about many times. And of course, I am me, so I had to bring in the stats, but I
1: think it's a I great- I actually made a PowerPoint. <laughs> you guys can't see it, but it, it looks good.
0: I think it's a good way to illustrate like how pervasive something is. Mm-hmm. Just when you see a number, number is like hard fact to some people. It really outlines this problem. So saying that, 56.1% of American Indian and Alaska Native women have experienced sexual violence. 55.5% have experienced physical violence from their intimate partner. 48.8% have experienced stalking and 66.4% have experienced psychological aggression by their intimate partner. So I think everyone should read the paper. We're going to post it with the audio so you can see these stats, but it breaks it down in comparison to white people, white women. It also looks at male Native American and both both populations when compared to white people mm-hmm. it's about double the risk
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's a very very scary so not only is it already likely that a native american woman's going to have some sort of physical violence as she gets older it only increases mm-hmm. so this 12 year old i mean hopefully this is dealt with and she gets the help she needs but this just makes her an even riskier situation for down the line. It's It's very scary. So I really would suggest reading this paper, sharing it with everyone. It's from 2016. And it is called, I didn't write it down, U.S. Department of Justice Violence Against American Indian and Alaska Native Women. So we'll post that for you so you can see all of those stats.
1: And I think it feels, you know, those numbers feel overwhelming and insurmountable. But I think if you break it down, it really comes down to generational trauma mm-hmm. and you know an complete uprooting of your culture and then not having support systems and inherent racism in the authority yeah. of people that support you and it's like though you can't you can't change the history but you can work like there should be such an abundance of treatment available to have people have someone to talk to, and and there are some good programs, the, but yeah, it's yeah, not, and it's just n- like law enforcement, what does that need to look like? Are you making sure that the people that are in law enforcement that support those communities are part of that community and I've, not just, uh, some, you know, I am a big
0: proponent of that, and I know a lot of colleges, uh, purposely recruit from the reservation because they want people from there to be involved in actual government positions. So you look at something like NAGPRA, which um, as an archaeologist, you have to deal with a lot because there are rights that Native Americans have with human remains. And so we would go and recruit off of the reservation, say, come to be an anthropology student. There's lots of scholarships. I think having more Native American people in government would help Mm -hmm. because transparency is a problem. We're not talking about these problems in white society. You know, who's going to learn about them? So one thing I want to bring up, which I know you guys make fun of me for being on TikTok. There's actually a (laughs) movement of native millennials and younger Gen Gen Z. Gen Z. Yeah. They're all on there and advocating for. For Native Americans. It's so cool. So there'll be like Yeah, I
1: really feel like you're seeing I know I'm, I'm seeing it more on social media. Yeah, it's cool. The hashtag MMIW and all of that. There's a like, lot. I
0: mean, there will they'll be in like ceremony dress just to get people like interested mm-hmm. in another culture. Uh the red paint mm-hmm. across the mouth that we've talked Even about. Even just
1: the other day, uh Portugal the man, you know, using their platform, the band, you know, using their platform. They did a whole thing on it the other day, and the, on their social media. So it's that easy of it's just becoming more relevant awareness. To and these then you go, people. well, why are people talking about it? And then you look into it. Next thing you know, it's yeah, that's not right. How do we fix it?
0: Mm-hmm. So I think more awareness and just getting online with it is important. But I also think we've got to get more of these kids on reservations growing up and going to college and and getting out into
1: you know white
0: person society yeah
1: present making sure that those opportunities are accessible absolutely to them. and
0: it yeah. just makes it i think better for everyone but mm-hmm. what i love love about it being on tiktok is like there's this whole generation of people glued to those phones mm-hmm. so this gets them actually interested in learning about other people yeah which i think is great
1: had a question about the case yes did it say how they discovered him the second time?
0: I think the grandfather found him again. Just found him in the. But I just the creepiest is him in that box spring. I tell you, I, I don't know much it's about. So the awful. I
1: mean, not to like end on a sour note, but just to know that one month of that has completely changed the trajectory of her life. Yeah, and I and hopefully it can be intervened. Go back and into be that, the mind- better.
0: Go back in that mindset of being a young girl and getting attention from a boy you think is cute. Like, they're just such a susceptible mm-hmm. little person. Well, and you don't
1: even think of it that way. I mean, it's one thing to be like, oh, he's paying attention, that's cool, and who knows why she's living just with Grandpa. You know, it's like there could be some inherent stuff where you're seeking out that Yeah, attention. there's probably a lot to the story. And so it's... You get that, and it just yeah, it just it's creepy, I mean, it's gross, it's awful.
0: Trying to say that he has some mental capacity issues, and like, just don't.
1: No, I'm right. pretty
0: sure he knew it was wrong. I mean, that, we'll see. It will that go to takes court. like
1: some cunning forethought, and to a, that's be grooming. like, okay, I'm gonna undo. Oh yeah, yeah when the, you're the online, conversation, that is grooming. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, she told you she was 12. That's yeah. when you say, oh, bye. Yeah, yeah. no. He wanted that to happen, so I think he needs to be punished severely. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days, and when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years, but if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderintherain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderintherain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear
1: again. Try Armoire today. The other day, after 14 and a half months, I had my first meal in a restaurant. I thought I would be a lot more anxious than I was, but in trusting in the science, and maybe against my better judgment, other people, it was a wonderful experience that nearly had me in tears. Shout out to Sweet Betty's in Gresham, which just changed locations, and is a fun, inclusive, and delicious place to go, so please check them out. After having a delicious breakfast, it felt like everything normal was going to be possible again. Besides going to the movies, there is one place that I hope to go to later this year that I have missed desperately during all of this quarantine lockdown, Disneyland. I know, I know, they're a big evil corporation, yada yada, but Disneyland holds the same place in my heart as, say, going to your grandma's, usually because we went to my grandma's when we went to Disneyland. I was going to say, even (laughs) I've gone to your grandma's (laughs) going to (laughs) to Disneyland. Your grandma and I had a fabulous day by the pool. You sure did. Ugh. I'm, I would say I missed out, but I was also in Disneyland and not Well, I was out. pregnant and puking my guts out, so <laughs> I preferred my day. Disneyland, of course, is part of the Disney catalog. They're the makers of our favorite parks, favorite movies, favorite TV shows, and a mediocre streaming app. One of the most iconic shows in Disney history had a catchy theme song that you might remember. It went a little something like this. If you are gorgeous youngsters like Emily and I, when you <laughs> hear the Mickey Mouse Club, you probably think about the churning machine of talent that was the 90s version of the original Mickey Mouse Club, which introduced us to such stars as Ryan Gosling, Carrie Russell, J.C. Chazé, Christina Aguilera, Justin Timberlake, and Britney Spears. Now, technically, those were part of the all new Mickey Mouse Club years. And decades before we were introduced to the stars that we'd still be partying to in the bathroom when we get ready to go out, the Mickey Mouse Club premiered on ABC back in 1955. Did it really? Mm hmm. And that was just a few months after the Disneyland Park had opened in California. I didn't know that. Well, now Now I do. do. Fun fact, the Mickey Mouse Club show came from real clubs that had been around since 1929. According to D23.com, there would be a fan club meeting at theaters where they would watch Mickey cartoons, they had bands perform, and even had elected officials. With over a million members, it was no surprise that the club became a show. And it was a lot of show. An hour every weekday. Episodes consisted of musical numbers, skits, special guests, and more, all hosted by the young Mouseketeers, the more famous of them being Annette Funicello and Bobby Burgess. Another cast member was an adorable, big-smiled 12-year-old boy named Dennis Day. Dennis had started his acting career when he was six and scored big when he landed the gig as a Mouseketeer. He was part of the cast for two seasons, even though he was pretty open and honest as a child and adult about his lack of singing ability. Regardless, Dennis's tap dancing, banjo playing, show business savvy and persistence mattered more in the club than his tone deafness. After two seasons with Mickey, Dennis set out to do things as he always did, outside the box. As he grew up, he continued to work in show business and was drawn to the counterculture of the 60s and 70s. He worked at a theater in New York, he taught drama and dancing in L.A., he directed musicals, he was a producer, and wrote a dance manual. For nearly 20 years, Dennis was the musical director for the California Renaissance Fairs and Dickens Christmas Fair. The safe and welcoming communities Dennis worked in during those times were even more important to him as an out gay man. As only a handful of known celebrities were out at the time, Dennis seemed to effortlessly live the life he wanted without fear of repercussions. Dennis wasn't bitter towards Disney, although the experience did change the trajectory of his life twice. Once in 68 and again in 1980, he appeared on Disney specials celebrating Mickey's 40th birthday and a Mouseketeer reunion show, respectively. Although he did say that he struggled with the fame he had when talking to Rolling Stone in 1971, saying, I have to say I owe a lot to the experience. My whole life has been influenced by it. But now that it's too late, I know I should never have been in television. I don't know what else I should have done. Maybe grown up with my family like a kid. That's sad. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. He's not like mad about having done it or like oh god this kind of misses what he could have yeah had. he realizes like oh as a child i shouldn't have been trying to be a performer it was at one of the festivals dennis was working where he met the nearly 12 year older henry ernie caswell he had just as interesting a resume as dennis he was a performer manager he was a priest with the christ catholic church and he spoke five languages wow i know i can barely get through english After spending the rest of the 70s in California, the couple made their way to southern Oregon. Not only was it cheaper, they actually ended up in Ashland, home of the annual Shakespeare Festival. After a few years there, they headed northwest to Phoenix, Oregon, which is about halfway between Ashland and Medford. Phoenix is a small place, only about 5,000 residents, and a lot of outdoor activities, because there just isn't much else there. Dennis ended up working at a Harry and David packaging plant, which is a fancy store you go to when you need to take a housewarming jelly to a co-worker's party.
0: (laughs) Or a Mother's Day gift.
1: Yes. You're welcome, Mother. He must have been inspired by Harry and David because he and Ernie eventually started making and selling their own chutneys, wine jellies, and jams. Mm -hmm. They lived a happy, simple life, going to rummage sales, Ernie performing in the local gay men's choir. Okay, simple, yes, but not boring. They were... Sorry. Oh, go ahead.
0: That's surprising. They have a gay men's choir there. Is I would imagine the makeup of that location isn't uh, uh
1: Yeah. They well they didn't say it was specifically in Phoenix. Oh, so, so I'm so thinking he maybe, maybe he to... have gone he might have gone to Medford gotcha. or Ashland or something that was maybe more conducive to that
0: you you know no offense to the area but it's definitely not as varied a people as you are the northern
1: i think a lot of people don't know that outside of the i-5 corridor which is basically eugene corvallis salem and portland oregon is a very red state yeah it just happens to have way more population in those cities which happens to all be blue so yeah you get out of portland and it gets i mean i have my neighbor across the street has a trump flag Which is why I bought a big non-Trump flag. Neighbor wars. Uh Uh-huh. Flag wars. Look (laughs) out. New show coming to TLC. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I was surprised uh, that there was a gay men's choir as well. They were passionate about working on progressive political campaigns and, of course, going to hometown buffet in their loudest uh, outfits.
0: Yeah. Yeah, girl. I, I would have been friends with them.
1: Oh, absolutely. So some of their attire that they would wear would be um, like Ernie had a big purple velvet fedora that had leopard oh my print goodness. around. I, the- can imp- <laughs> I can picture it in yeah. my mind. Or they'd wear like really bright jackets <laughs> or it really sounded like they were. It, it wasn't that scary idea of that community. They were, were just like fun. Yeah, it was like everyone loved them. They right. were just those guys, and they're loud, and it's great. Then in 2013, after decades together, the couple married, Dennis saying he never thought it would happen, that he had always cried at weddings, but never thought he would be able to cry at his own. But time was passing, and their age was catching up. Especially for Ernie, he was older and was dealing with memory and other health issues. As time went on, Dennis was unable to keep up with the caregiving of his beloved husband. In just a couple of years, there were nearly 30 calls to 911 for help. Oh, man. Yeah.
0: What was the age difference between the uh, two? 12
1: years. So okay. he was uh, Ernie was in his 70s at the time. On top of the care Ernie needed, Dennis needed help maintaining the home. Their purple home was starting to fall apart inside and out. They weren't keeping up with regular repairs. Their animals were kept inside for bathrooming. And yeah, in addition, they were relying on meals on wheels just for their food. Eventually, Ernie went to the hospital and due to his condition and Dennis's inability to care for him, he was moved to an assisted living facility. Two days after Ernie's admittance to the facility on July 15, 2018, Dennis went to visit his friend Kirk Peterson. Kirk had introduced Dennis and Ernie to his handyman, Daniel Bruda. Years prior, Kirk had hired Daniel as a handyman to help him around his house. When it became clear to their friend that Dennis and Ernie needed help with housework, Kirk offered the use of his handyman. And as a show of friendship, Kirk even paid Daniel $100 a day for working at their house. Isn't that nice? Like the friend was like, "I can't do the work."
0: Very much needed. If he was willing to
1: do that, this worked out well for everyone. Kirk felt Daniel was a good worker, and his cost was reasonable. Dennis and Ernie even got to the point where they would actually allow Daniel to stay at their house in exchange for his help. Eventually, though, the older couple didn't want the burden of their handyman living in their home, and tensions grew. That was why Dennis was at Kirk's house. He was asking for help. He claimed Daniel had pushed him down and he wanted him out of his house and to talk to the police about the assault. Hmm. But this was a Sunday evening and the local police station was closed. Oh dear, what? Well, how small is this town? I mean, pretty small. I'm sure you could still call 911, but like going in to file oh, a see. report. Right. Yeah. So Kirk promised to take Dennis to the station in the morning. But Dennis wouldn't make it to his friend's house or to the police station. Meanwhile, Ernie was at his new home and was anxiously awaiting a visit from his husband, but he didn't show. After two weeks, Ernie was able to get the employees to contact the police, and they went to the couple's home for a welfare check, but there was no answer.
0: Do we know how often he would visit?
1: It made it sound like he hadn't even visited yet because oh, he was he just transferring and getting two in. Two weeks seems like a very long time. It does. So there wasn't anything saying he hadn't, so I'm not sure if he was visiting every other day and then maybe he missed a day or two Mm. or if in those two weeks he hadn't shown. But it sounded like the amount of time in which he was expected to be there, he hadn't gone. Ernie was able to get the employees to contact the police and they went by the couple's home for a welfare check and Daniel answered. When asked about Dennis, Daniel said Dennis said he would be out of town to go visit people, Mm. but he wasn't sure who or where or for how long? That's suspicious. That's a red flag is what that is. Yeah, it sure is. Ernie did tell the police that Dennis had mentioned he might get out of town for a few days. But you'll have to remember that Ernie also has memory health issues. So Dennis was surely needing a rest after the trauma of watching his husband being rushed to the hospital and now put into a home. But again, he didn't say where he was going or how long he'd be there. And side note, hey, everyone listening? Please tell people. It's not that hard. Shoot a text message of where you're going and when you should be expected back. Even if it's like a day hike, it's not that hard.
0: It is a kind of habit you have to force yourself into. That's we true. We have a friend who I'm not going to name names. Named. They did a first date, a first date with a stranger on a hike that was eight miles long. It was an all day date and when they got there, they realized this is a person they did not want to spend all day with.
1: Yeah, that's a horrible that's a horrible date idea. But that's none a horrible of us way to move. Yeah. And either. you're just out in the woods. Or, that's stupid. You know,
0: what I do is I have two people that I'm constantly sharing my location yeah. with. Yeah. So as long as I tell them I'm doing something, they know where I am. So
1: we have a roommate and she goes hiking and I go to text her anytime she goes and I'll just say, Hey, where'd you end up? Because she usually doesn't know ahead of time. Right. And then she'll just say this this hike for half the day, I should be home around whatever time.
0: Yeah, that's smart. Smart stuff, guys. We've
1: all watched I Survived. We know. Just leave the note. Maybe somebody wants to be on the show. <laughs> there are easiest shows to get on.
0: <laughs> I want to be a reality TV star, so Some I think starting I'm going to be on I Survived. I
1: Survived. <laughs> so I'm going to go swim in the shark-infested water. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't be alive. I don't know. <laughs> 12 days since Dennis went by Kirk's house and 10 days since the first welfare check, police returned to the home. It isn't clear if they just knocked or what all they did, but again, there was no sign of Dennis. Now, there was a real concern. Dennis may be one to leave the house or leave town for even a few days, but he wasn't one to abandon his husband, their pets, or their house. That's when an APB was put out for Dennis's car. The day before the APB went out and 130 miles away in Coos County, Dennis's 1996 Ford Escort was found in the possession of a woman from Medford, Lori DeKlusen. She claimed to be borrowing the car from her friend, Dennis, but police soon learned her actual friend in the scenario mm. was Daniel. I figured it might be. How'd you do that, you Deductive little detective? Reasoning. This took Dennis's disappearance from suspicious to frightening. Police informed Ernie that Dennis's car had been recovered, so they officially listed Dennis Day as missing. Sadly, because of Ernie's memory issues, he was unable to provide basic information about his husband or their friends Mm -hmm. and family. That's terrible. Yeah. Police followed what trails they could. They questioned Daniel. He reiterated what Ernie had shared, that Dennis said he was going to leave for a few days. While that seemed like the only logical answer at that point, close friends found it hard to believe that their friend who had become nearly a hermit and he hardly left his house would be gone for more than a day or two, if at all. Police even reached out to any and all friends and family they could find or that Ernie could provide, but again, his health made that nearly impossible. No one that the police contacted had heard from Dennis or had made plans to see him, the detectives involved continued to examine the recovered vehicle and Dennis's home. There were no clues, no signs of foul play. Searching the house, the police were up against a challenge, investigating a house that was small, crowded, and not being cared for. While they didn't say specifically, it has been implied that Dennis and Ernie were hoarders or, as my training has taught me, acquirers to a certain degree. <laughs> Wait, is that the PC term? It's, uh, kind, it's not so much a PC, but like hoarding is negative. And so as a level three hoarder, I will admit. How many levels are there? Uh, nine. It's, it's more like the negative connotation to it. And so you aren't hoarding it away. You're acquiring things. And it was a really cool training because I went for my the population I was working with because I had like level 10, level 20 hoarders. Um, But it was really interesting how they talked about the mindset of it. And it's like it's usually creative people because they see something they don't want to throw it away because they see a use for it that maybe someone else doesn't or you feel a responsibility to keep things out of the landfill and whatever i was so i was sitting i went for work and then i'm sitting there like "Uh uh-huh yes (laughs) this is me you're speaking to me thank you did they
0: mention anything about the correlation between acquiring and uh animals inside like that
1: um i don't remember yeah i don't remember specifically but um yeah i think they did go into that i'll try to find it it was really fascinating i mean even if i didn't acquire things it was so intriguing because I always thought it came from, like, a trauma and then you, like, snap or whatever and you start doing it. And it's, like, so different from that. It's my really intriguing. My grandmother's
0: neighbor across the street was like that. Mm. And my mom never let me eat anything from there. Oh, yeah. And I couldn't understand because as a kid I, I didn't know she was different. right.
1: Right. Their acquiring could have led to the house not being the easiest thing to search, although they did search the house at least three different times, hoping to find any sign as to where Dennis would have gone. During the searches, they went through the couple's drawers, cabinets, freezer, and even went through their crawl space. The weeks of searching and following leads soon turned into months. Then, word spread to those that had worked with Dennis through the years, and a Facebook group was started. A beloved friend, performer, husband, and Mouseketeer had vanished, and his friends were desperate to do anything they could to help. Calls were made, banners were created. It took some time, but thankfully, because of Dennis's Mickey Mouse Club history, attention was brought to his story, making local, national, and international news. Where was the missing Mouseketeer? While his disappearance was worrisome enough, the months were going by and summer was turning into a cold winter. Wherever he was and whomever he was with, the elements were going to get worse. With only a few police on the squad, the Phoenix police reached out for help after five months of no leads. They were given two detectives to work on the case, one from Oregon State Police and the other from local Jackson County Sheriff's Office. As time went on, the case got more and more attention. It was helpful and appreciated that the Facebook groups grew and that the case was covered on most major news outlets and even got Dateline coverage, but it wasn't helping with results. Dennis's family was frustrated with the lack of answers, so they started a GoFundMe so they could hire a private detective, but nothing came of it. From as early as three weeks into the investigation, there had been reports from neighbors and calls to 911 made that there was a foul odor coming from the house. Uh Uh-oh. One of the calls even came from the Meals on Wheels volunteer that was delivering their food. While officers didn't go to the house after each call, they did go to the house for investigative searches. During each of which, there was no overwhelmingly concerning smell, hmm. although there were reports of the urine and excrement throughout the house obviously causing a smell. So it's kind they of probably assumed, wrote it off to yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Bad smell's a bad smell, yep. am I right? Finally, in April of 2019, 10 months after Dennis was last seen, officers took a canine unit to the house in hopes of finding some sort of lead. After three unsuccessful searches, they finally got a hit on something, Uh and it was much more than a clue. The dog had signaled at something under a pile of clothing. Sadly, what the dog had discovered was Dennis's decomposing body. Under a pile of clothing in the house? How was that missed? a body that, according to a Day family lawyer, had been stepped on and walked across while concealed beneath the clothing multiple times oh my by police officers.
0: God. It must have been a large acquirement of things in that room, but to not Ex- even yeah.
1: move where you're walking? Or go, here's a big pile. I wonder if he fell since he was older and maybe ended up under here or something. That's horrific. If you're if you're pulling drawers open and finding a freezer to check and a crawl space, you can't be bothered. To you move can't a pile move of the floor floors. around. Yeah, they had actually stepped on his remains so much they had caused skeletal fractures. It took a month for the remains to be confirmed as Dennis because DNA and dental records could not be used due to his body's condition. The investigation had changed from a missing person to homicide due to the body being hidden under the clothes. But who would have wanted to kill the 76-year-old man? Once the focus shifted from the where to the who, some disturbing information came to surface. Oh, no. It turned out that Dennis had, in fact, called the police before his disappearance. Back in July of 2018, Dennis reported to the police that his live-in handyman, Daniel Bruda, had behaved violently towards him. The responding officer's solution, that he, Dennis, would need to start the formal eviction process against Daniel because he's a tenant. Please tell me someone sued this police department. Ooh, I wonder if they did. At the start of the searches and investigation when Dennis was still missing, the police spoke with Daniel at the house on two different occasions. On the body cam footage of the interview closest to when he went missing, Mm -hmm. it's Obvious that Daniel has injuries and wounds to his hands and arms that were consistent with an altercation. Oh, boy. With Dennis being found dead, his car being in possession of a strange woman that was friends with Daniel was now much more concerning. So, in June of 2019, Daniel and the woman found in Dennis and Ernie's car, Lori DeClusen, and another woman, Wanda Garcia, were all arrested. Lori for unauthorized use of a vehicle for which she was indicted by a grand jury, and Wanda for car theft and for stealing and selling a brooch that was taken from the house. With Daniel's arrest, the 36-year-old's extensive legal history came to light. He had a decade-long arrest and prison record, including serving time for sodomy, robbery, and assault. Oh, my goodness. He also started using meth a year before Dennis's death. A recipe for a bad time. hmm once arrested, Daniel was charged with manslaughter, abuse of a corpse, and identity theft. There's also evidence of him using Dennis's debit card to make multiple purchases after Dennis went missing, so illegal credit card use is also a component. Under arrest, Daniel opened up to police about what had happened between him and Dennis. Daniel claimed that, while he had only been living with Dennis and Ernie for a couple months, Dennis wanted him out of the house. They had frequent arguments about it, and tensions were high. Once Ernie went into assisted living, things only got worse. Then, two weeks after Ernie left, things became really heated. Dennis and Daniel's argument became physical when Daniel pushed Dennis to the ground. It's unclear if he died from the fall or was injured, but to literally cover up his crime, Daniel just hid Dennis's body, perhaps while he was still alive, Ugh. under the pile of clothes in the house's living room.
0: And I'm guessing we're not going to know because the body was so uh, crushed. They well, aren't be able to you see a little that. scientist? <laughs> do you want to just do this case? <laughs> Let me just jump in here, guys. I don't know the case,
1: but I can finish it. Can we go watch a, a legal thriller together and you can just spoil the whole <laughs> I thing? I do that frequently. I, I apologize. That's the fun of it. There are a few other reasons the cause of death isn't known, as Emily just spoiled. (laughs) Sorry. Daniel admitted that the smell of death started to take over the home, so he used different chemicals to help with that. Those chemicals may have destroyed evidence. Additionally, after having the police step on the pile of clothes and damage Dennis's skeleton, the medical examiner was unable to say what injuries were from Daniel and what came from the weight of being stepped on. So... For those that's, reasons, they don't know the cause of death.
0: That's hard. I mean, so sometimes you can tell just because uh, as you're not to just like step in and be a scientist, but as as your kind of the moisture leaves your bones mm-hmm. and things, you can tell when something was perimortem, postmortem. But right. if it's been just, as I can imagine, totally trampled that they can't even tell that. Right.
1: That's just well, and then sad. it makes you wonder where it's like, OK, was he still alive and did suffering. he, ble- he could have bled internally from the fall mm. he could have had i certainly a head hope injury. he died quickly me too i hope that he, he hit his, fell head right his head and his head yeah. and that was it wow um, that is just so depressing. but yeah but obviously it, it also wasn't that severe because he didn't have like a cracked skull or Ugh. knife wound you know the medical examiner didn't say anything like that you know so it's mm-hmm. not it's not obvious for now, justice remains at a standstill. After the arrest, Daniel Bruto was found unfit to stand trial due to a mental health condition that remains in his sealed documents. It was clear to the doctors that worked with him that Daniel was unaware of how serious his actions were or how serious the charges were. This was at the end of 2019, so while he will be reevaluated every few months, for now he is getting proper treatment in the Oregon State Mental Hospital. Once he is found fit, he will go to trial. But there have obviously been some holdups, as there was a little thing called COVID that threw off trial schedules. The same goes for the two women involved. Declusion was supposed to appear in court back in September of 2019 and Garcia was appearing in November. I was unable to find updates on either woman, but we will definitely let you know if we hear something. Uh, Although if you do know Lori Declusion, she does have a warrant out for her arrest because she didn't show up to that trial in September. Oh, boy. When it came to Dennis's family, they have filed a nearly $2 million lawsuit against the Phoenix police. Thank you, family. They argue that they can't understand how police can search a house multiple times and not find a body, how complaints of smells from neighbors didn't alarm the officers whose station was only two blocks away from the house, and they didn't understand how on earth they could go into a home with a smell of death and step on the remains of their loved one. The police argue that they never restricted the family's access to the house. Like, you can't sue us for being bad oh, at so our it, job. So it's their fault that yeah. they didn't
0: find the body?
1: Yeah, like, oh, hey, boy. you could have come to the house yourself. It's that kind of thing. No, it's like... you're
0: the ones who are professionals that are supposed to know how to care for a crime scene. And
1: who says if they're even close? Like, is it, are they even drivable distance? Like, that's not my problem. Oh, that really chaps my ass. I'll mm-hmm. tell you what. But even that isn't accurate as the family claims that six weeks before Dennis's body was discovered, the police made a strong suggestion that they didn't bother coming down because it's just going to muddle the investigation. OK. You have thoughts? I feel? Yes,
0: I do. Mm-hmm. So this friend that introduced them to Daniel. If he's got so many mental issues and it's so obvious, how did he not pick up on something off about
1: him? It. Sounded like he was just the handyman, like just kind maybe of. Maybe he never spent a
0: long period. Of uh, yeah, time I with think
1: it, it sounded very casual with them. So I think it, they just crossed paths, and he's like, "I'm a handyman. If you ever need work, and so he maybe just had him every yeah, once in it's a unfortunate
0: while. Unfortunate, he lived there because
1: exactly. So it's like he, from what I read, it sounded like it was a very casual acquaintance and. So then he's like, oh, yeah. I mean, most people do that with that type of contractor worker mm. where it's like, oh, I got, yeah, I got a cabinet guy. Oh, I got a plumber guy. And you don't really know them, but it's, oh, they did good work.
0: And let me just think out loud here for a second in defense of the police for a mm-hmm. moment. They're It's a missing persons case. They're likely not combing through a home like they would on a homicide scene, right? So if if we know a crime was committed right. in the home, they probably would have taken everything out. hmm um so they were likely only moving what they had to and looking for anything that could possibly tell them where he's been or where he went. Right. But I'm I'm having a really hard time with that because I wouldn't I would expect that they're not going to step on someone's belongings. They should have at least moved where they're going to walk.
1: You know, something that stuck with me, I watched the um Golden State Killer documentary mm. on Netflix and something I had never thought about, it was a woman um I don't remember her name or her victim number, so I'm sorry about that. But it was her and her husband talking about how they had to move because the house was just, like, ruined. Now they couldn't be there after the memories. And I had never thought of it. They were like, it looked like a smoke bomb had gone off because of all the fingerprinting. Oh, yeah. That they had gone through and just left it. And it's like. Oh, yeah. They go through and search stuff. They don't care. They don't clean up after no. themselves. So
0: that's why they're those third parties for crime scene mm-hmm. cleanup and they'll come in and do it. But that's it's not automatic. But it is
1: where it's just like. But if you're searching. Yeah. You just kind of think, OK, if you see a pile of something, how are you not just scooting stuff around just to be like, I'm search. What are you going to find in a drawer? A note of where he I went to go see my family and yeah. I hid it in my sock drawer. So you're not going to find a note. and You're not going to find his body. Why are you looking in drawers? You're dealing with an older person that maybe fell or was hurt by someone. And by then they know that yeah, he that's had reported. Good
0: if, if someone's missing and their home looks like a disaster area. Yeah. Wouldn't you maybe look for someone Which who had fallen? Which is
1: very common that for people that happens. have that kind of home. It's very common. It, it
0: is. Yeah. I've heard several cases where somebody wasn't found for a very long time. Because yeah. they just lived in what we would think looks like a garbage dump. You right. Know?
1: Yeah, so it, it's uh, it, maybe baffling. maybe we need
0: to implement protocol for these types of homes.
1: Oh, you know, yeah, I, mean, I wonder if they, I wonder if they even have that. And I and it makes me think too. You know, it's like I've been in a room where someone has died and been for a few weeks, and it does stay. And there was other stuff there. There was fecal matter and stuff. Creaks. Yeah, and you can smell all that, but there is a difference in the death smell. And you would think these cops being trained could maybe. Yeah, Tell the difference between or, dog pee and a, you know, nine month. And I don't know if
0: there's probably body. no budget for this, considering the dogs are 10,000 a pop. Right. But having a dog for missing person just in general. Yeah. Could be helpful for looking for those types of smells. Yeah. And then
1: you look and go, OK, they did have to reach out because they didn't even have detectives. So they had to reach out to get more help. So maybe they've just never dealt with anything like this, where, again, you don't want to be like, OK, sue them for all their money. But it's also like, well, yeah, that's your job. That's
0: a, that's a good <laughs> point. These small towns, some of them have never even handled a homicide yeah. before. We've we've come across a lot of cases like that where they need to send someone from the state police to mm-hmm. help out because they're, none of them are they might be trained on it, but they've never actually put it into practice. Yeah. So I guess I can understand to an extent. But when you hear someone's loved one's body was trampled on
1: and it all was kind of there I mean it even before it came to light about Daniel and all this stuff it's like hmm the neighbor connected them with Daniel Daniel was the last they, person the to car, see him that's a let me run Daniel's background oh we do have some issues here let's maybe bring him in mm-hmm. well an elderly
0: person their car was found that to me automatically oh, yeah. goes from a missing person to a homicide oh yeah like I, I would have, but at that point, turned it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a detective or anything.
1: <laughs> well, maybe you should be. Did when you I hear read yourself <laughs> this episode, my goodness.
0: <laughs> when I read these types of cases, there always, there's always a that pivotal moment mm-hmm. where it's like, "Yep, it's a homicide." Yeah. In in a case I'm working on, or I did for TikTok recently, there was a, one of those moments as well where it was like, "Yep, it's been weeks. We're pretty certain she's dead now." Right. That changes how you approach the the
1: property. Mm-hmm. That's when they should have done
0: everything. Well, and also
1: it's like, um, you know, why did it take a dog a few minutes? I get that the dog's trained for it, but why? I'm thinking the house was you, much worse. Than you were, we were working vi- on it for you were working on it for nine months and not coming across it. Like it's just, it just <sighs> blows your mind. It's like, wouldn't things have moved? Wouldn't there be spots I mean I again I like anybody, you know I follow all those pages on Instagram so do the, I. The crime I, scene cleanup I
0: think anybody rec- would recognize the smell of human decay it is a very different smell
1: yeah it's just it's really interesting and it's horrible because obviously this was like a perfect storm of everything going wrong like Ernie happened to have left and gone to the hospital and then was out of the house yeah. and then dennis was left on his own and then his car was gone so people were like oh did he drive here did he drive to my house where it and then a storm a of small... questionable activity
0: is what that is Like Ooh, you...
1: and that's my uh true crime novel coming out thank you <laughs> trademarked <laughs> oh my okay. god
0: that's so sad
1: as for Ernie Caswell, he is still at the assisted living facility. His memory continues to fade, but he can still recall when he met the love of his life, Dennis Day, at the Christmas play. When we think of mistreatment, we usually think of race or gender, but ageism is real and prolific. Would someone have done more if Dennis had been younger when he called to report the violence he was experiencing? Maybe. Would he have been so vulnerable to people like Daniel Bruda? Probably not. While there aren't exact numbers, as it is believed crimes against seniors are majorly underreported, those that are 65 and older are more susceptible to certain crimes. Physical abuse can occur in care facilities and with in-home caregivers. Now with the Internet, there are phone and email scams that can decimate someone's financial security. You know, scams done like garbage scum people like Jen Shaw from Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. (laughs) Don't even get me started on her. Oh, boy. Here we go. I said, I'm not getting started. (laughs) There are many reasons seniors can become easier targets to those that wish to rip them off or harm them. And many reasons that those incidents aren't reported, such as embarrassment or confusion. But there are things we can do to help. Number one, talk to the older folks in your life. Don't discount them. Stay in contact. And if they mention something that seems wrong or off, try to dive into it. Don't let them try to deal with Nigerian princes on their own. Another is a senior phone line. In Oregon, we have linesforlife.org, a phone line that provides support for seniors that may just need someone to talk to or help with issues like this. So if you're in Oregon, make sure your elder loved ones have this number, 800-273-8255. If you would like to volunteer to take calls, you can do so by emailing bill at billf at linesforlife.org.
0: One of the most horrific things that I recall from my childhood was mm-hmm. watching a 2020 on elder abuse. Oh. It really opened my eyes to something that I never in a million years would have thought of. Mm-hmm. But a woman was getting complaints from her mother and put in a camera and just saw some horrific things. Mm. And then other people around the country were doing this. Um, I mean, horrible things like a man had a brain surgery and his caretaker was hitting him in the head right mm. after. So just, oh, I think
1: I remember that. Yeah, that sounds yeah, really scars familiar. me
0: big time. But yeah. I think there was a lot of uh, people that just didn't talk about it. So you didn't really realize it was so prevalent. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a scary thing, especially if you can't support your elders and your yeah. family and don't either don't have the room or the money to to have them in your own home. Uh, It's a scary world putting them in facilities. So it's really important that you research them.
1: Yeah, I think um, people don't realize how vulnerable of a population older people are because it's like, oh, they're adults or they can do that on their own. But when I think of a vulnerable population, it's little kids people with special needs and the elderly Mm -hmm. because it's who are they going to tell or are they going to be believed or and they are in those situations where it is like little kids where maybe you're dealing with bathrooming Mm -hmm. or you're dealing with behaviors or you're dealing you know it could be just like dealing with those same stressors and we have
0: a friend in the industry Mm -hmm. of uh, care facilities and they mentioned there are seniors who are having They have memory issues Mm -hmm. and they may act out and tell stories that aren't necessarily true. So then that's like, okay, then the caretakers are just assuming everyone's like that. Are they really Hearing what's being said. Right. So it's a I don't it's a hard one right there. But Mm -hmm. pay attention and listen to your elders for sure. Oh, that's that's a doozy, Alicia.
1: You're welcome. I have one more paragraph. Dennis Day spent his life entertaining and bringing joy to others. Those that loved him are working to continue his legacy as an entertainer and lover of the arts. He deserved so much more than what happened to him and deserves to be known for something more than the body that was carelessly stepped over and discarded.
0: Using Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat.
1: Snapchat? Snapchat. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't have OnlyFans, but I do have a Snapchat.
0: <laughs> he suggested that they meet at the Wild Horse Resort and Casino in Kichinya. <laughs> he suggested they meet at the Wild Horse Resort in Oh my God. <laughs> <Quixino>. <laughs> <laughs> it's very distracting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I was I yeah, was silent. Like someone
1: putting an earbud up their nose one hole. Time. <laughs> one time. One time. One <laughs> time.
0: That was a good fart sound. Thanks. Thank I've you. I've been working on
1: it. Thank you. And then that'll be. Oh, I was expecting you to sing no. it. No. <laughs> M-I-C-K-Y. Oh, dear. M- do you want me to give you a Jessica Simpson version? <laughs> I absolutely do not. And I don't know why she has come
0: up several times this week. Oh, she's like, I have something serious to tell you. And it was, how did she become famous? (laughs) I love Renaissance Fairs. Nerd. It's a little little tidbit about Emily that a lot of people don't know. Have you ever, you've like been to Renaissance Fairs? Girl. So (laughs) my brother might be cool now, but when he was a kid, all he wanted all year was that renaissance oh. fair and he would save up his money and he would buy his dragon and his sword. Oh, that's He cute. spent $56 on a dragon with like a ball <laughs> it was guarding. <laughs> and I still make fun of him today. That's Shout amazing. Shout out to Graham.
1: Hey, Graham. And they went by the couple's home for a, were- a werewolf. A werewolf? Werewolf check. Ow. <laughs> uh. Excuse me. During Oh. During, During. <laughs> Am I Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough, edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials. And for more true crime, follow at M underscore murder in the rain on TikTok. And you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls.